0: Good morning church, joy to worship together with you this morning, let's continue to worship in God's word, so why don't you take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 17, Is where we're going to be this morning, if you are a guest, we are just overjoyed that you'd be with us this morning, and you'll, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the seat in front of you, or the, uh, the seat pocket in front of you, and that's our gift to you, you're welcome to take that with you, but we're going to continue in the book of Acts, Acts 17 this morning, find your place there going to try to walk through this entire chapter this morning. We'll see how that goes. We'll get as far as we can. But uh, I want to kind of set up where we're going in Acts 17 this morning this way with, with just a statement, really, that the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ, when a person believes in Christ and is born again, A person is radically transformed. Every part of the person is radically transformed. In other words, Jesus Christ doesn't change just part of us when we come to believe in Him, He changes every part of us. He changes the way we see the world. Uh, Jesus Christ changes the way we think about the world. Jesus Christ changes the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about Him. In other words, The gospel message is completely transformational. Amen? Aren't you glad? As a result of that, those who have been transformed by Jesus and those who hold out the gospel and those who live by faith and those who are believers, genuine born-again believers, live in a world and a culture around us that doesn't necessarily always line up with what we believe and what we say. In other words, believers, you will often find yourself out of step with the culture around you. Now the Apostle Peter captures this. You don't have to turn there, but Peter at the beginning of one of his letters he says to a group of believers that he's writing to, he says this, I'll just quote it to you. Peter says, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens. <laughs> you ever been to church and somebody call you an alien? <laughs> Peter's saying, as a believer in Christ, because of the transformational nature of what Jesus has done in us, there will be times in the world you feel like an alien, Right? Because your message and your life are going to feel in this world that we live in like you're from another planet, man. (laughs) And I'll just say this, if you're a part of this church and you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you know we're taking very seriously that the responsibility of making Jesus known To our neighbors, our friends, this culture, we own that responsibility. It's been entrusted to us. So if you're actively holding out the message of the gospel of sin and brokenness, but yet redemption that's found in Jesus by a man that lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross and rose from the dead, there's going to be times that the world's going to look at you and go, you are from another planet, man. Do you feel that? as believers you you're going to feel like an alien in in a world sometimes where and you just got to realize like Peter said you you don't belong here we we we're literally made for a different world our life and our message will often be out of step with the culture around us now acts chapter 17 the apostle paul and Timothy his companion and Luke now who is with them and Silas has joined them. They are traveling throughout the Roman world and they are taking the message of Jesus to city after city after city after city. And man, sometimes the message of the gospel is received, often is, it is rejected. But the message that Paul is sharing and the message that Paul is preaching often seems like, man, that came from a different planet. To the world he's holding that message out to. So then for us today as we walk through Acts chapter 17. Here's really the big question that I want us to wrestle with. How do we live as aliens when our life and our message. Are just out of step with the world around us. So in Acts chapter 17 you can go ahead and find your place there. I'm not going to take time to read the beginning. I'm just going to walk through it very quickly. But remember Paul and his Team, I'm going to use a map really quick just to catch you up with context so you know when we read the Bible, we're not talking about fictitious places out there somewhere. We're talking about real places on the planet. So remember, as we read this, Paul and Silas and others, they began in the city of Antioch. That's modern-day Turkey right above Syria there. Remember, they leave Antioch and then they go up into a town called Philippi. We saw that last week when uh, Pastor Paul was teaching us in the are Philippi. They traveled from Philippi, then they go to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a real city. It's a real city now in the, in the area of Greece there. And in Thessalonica, at the beginning of chapter 17, Paul shares the gospel. Paul plants his life there for a period of time, and people come to know Christ. A church is planted in Thessalonica, and then later we have the letters of First and 2 Thessalonians, which is Paul writing back to this church at Thessalonica, and then he Uh, There were some there that were not happy with the message he was preaching, and they they drive him out of Thessalonica, and he travels from there, and he goes to the next town, which is Berea. And there in Berea, many came to know Christ. They believe this radical message of the gospel. A a church is planted there in Berea, and then he, he leaves Berea, and he goes on down into Greece, and he goes to the city of Athens. And that's what we're going to look at really this morning and spend most of our time is Paul now has arrived at what is the cultural capital of the known world, the city of Athens. And I want to pick up there, I want to begin reading around verse 16 so you can kind of follow along with me. I'm going to read a few verses and then we're going to go back through. And For us, what we have here in this passage with the city of Athens is it's really help and a challenge for us who Look like, we feel like, our message is like it's from a different world. How do we live as aliens in a world when our life and our message are simply out of step? Paul's going to walk into Athens like, a, like an alien. <laughs> He's holding out this message of this Jewish Messiah named Jesus to a pagan world that really wants nothing to do with it, if you will. They have their own sets of beliefs and they have their own worldview and they have their own understanding of how the world operates and how the world's going to end and how to relate to deity and all of that. They have their own worldviews that have been shaped in their own imagination. Sound familiar? That's the world we live in today. But Paul takes the same simple gospel message that you and I have and he shares it with this really very pagan culture there in Acts 17. So it's helpful and challenging for us to take a look at that this morning. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. Here's what Luke, the author, writes. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, because of the persecution that arose in Berea, they sent Paul on down to Athens really by himself. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas and the rest of the team to join him. So he's basically there by himself in Athens. Now, I think you know this, and I said it, but I want you to understand, when you see the city of Athens, understand, Paul now is at the Mecca, culturally speaking, of the known world. What happened in Athens never stayed at Athens. In other words, Athens was highly influential in the rest of the world from a cultural standpoint, from an entertainment standpoint, from an education standpoint, from a standpoint of philosophy. The way many people thought in the Roman world flowed out of Athens, the worldviews of the day flowed out of Athens. Maybe you could think of it like, from a cultural standpoint, Hollywood and all the influence that Hollywood might have. Or, or the education, uh, like a Harvard or a Yale, or, or these educational institutions that might have so much sway in the way our culture sees reality and sees our God. So Paul steps into this highly influential culture of Athens. Athens. You also probably know, if you know anything about history, that Athens is the religious capital, if you will, of the Roman world at this time. The Greek Pantheon is represented with Zeus and Hermes and all these Greek gods that were representations of how the Greeks saw the world from how the world came into being, how the world operates. All oh, they saw it through these Greek gods, and they're represented all over Athens. And Paul is walking through and he's taking all this in. Verse 16, as he walks through Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews. When Paul would go into a city, the first place he would usually go is the synagogue. He knew he could find some place to start, at least, with the gospel in the synagogue. He went there, but he didn't stay there. He went into the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Verse eighteen. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Epicurus and, and uh, these other philosophers had preceded him; they had been dead for hundreds of years, but their philosophy or their way of thinking was still really strong in Athens. So Paul gets into these dialogue with these philosophers. Verse nineteen. I'm sorry, verse 18. What would this idle babbler wish to say, they were saying about Paul? In other words, this message that you're preaching, Paul, and this stuff that you're sharing, it's like idle babble to us. What is is the sense of all this? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Like you're from a foreign planet, Paul. And they took him and they brought him to the Aregopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. Verse 20. For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21. Now the Athenians and the strangers who were visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And we'll stop right there for just a minute. So as we read through this passage, you kind of read through Acts 17. I want us to see four things this morning very quickly. I want us to see what Paul saw. I want us to see this morning what Paul, as he walks through Athens, what he felt. I want us to see this morning what Paul did. Paul does some things that are so instructive, encouraging, and challenging for us as believers in a world that often doesn't accept our message. And then what Paul said. In the midst of all these philosophies, in the midst of all these strange worldviews, and in the midst of this pantheon of other gods, if you will, Paul, what is your message? What do you say? What's going to be relevant in this culture? And man, it is helpful and instructive for us this morning. So four things. Number one, what does Paul see as he walks around Athens? Go back to verse 16 says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing a city full of idols. Now, if you write in your Bible, that word observing is a really important word. The word observing here, it means it doesn't just mean Paul is a tourist, you know, taking the tour of Athens and checking everything out. He's not just taking pictures and checking things off his to-do list and his bucket list. Paul, the word observing means literally to view attentively. It means to discern with your heart and your soul. It means not just to take a casual glance at something. Paul is walking through the city of Athens, and by the Spirit of God within him, he's seeing everything through gospel lenses. He's not just seeing the statues, and he's not just seeing the people, and he's not just seeing all the art. He's observing, literally, the word means, with his very soul what is before him. He is being very discerning about what's in front of him. It would be almost like a dad who his daughter brings home a date for the first time, right? You're going to be very discerning about that boy, or I hope you will. It's not just a casual conversation. You're asking some things to get beneath the surface. What's really there if you want to take my daughter anywhere, young man, right? So Paul is taking all of this in. He's discerning deeply what he sees. And the Bible says he sees or he observes a city full of idols. Now you read that and you think, well, of course he did. I mean, he walked around and there's a statue on every corner. There was the, the Greek Parthenon. There was the temple of Artemis. There were these statues that could be seen from hundreds of miles away. Of course he saw a city full of idols, but that's not the phrase here. Luke uses a very descriptive word to help us understand. Paul saw beyond the statues and the wood and the hay and all the statues and all the altars. He saw beyond that. The word city full of idols literally means he saw a city under the weight of their idols. In other words, in in the midst of all the innumerable temples and shrines and statues and altars and all he saw, Paul saw beyond all of that, and here's a descriptive phrase, Paul saw the souls of the people buried and submerged underneath the influence of their idols. To put it this way, Paul saw the souls and the soul condition of the people who were there. Now, at this point, and maybe you've been reading along in this, and it'd be real easy for you to say, Well, okay, so I mean, I drive around Gray and I drive around Johnson City, and I hadn't seen an idol yet, so this doesn't even apply to us. Besides the weird Indian that's down at the barbecue place in Kingsport. What's the weird Indian? Maybe that's an idol. I don't know. Pratt's barbecue. There you go. What does this mean? Listen, I don't want you to miss what Paul is doing and what Scripture is doing here is giving you an understanding of how the human heart works. In any culture... In other words, Paul looks out and he sees all that's going on, and he sees the rampant immorality, and he sees the sin, and he sees the wickedness, and Paul, Paul doesn't just look at it and stamp his foot and go, oh, I'm just so sick of this, and turn around and walk off. No, no. Paul sees the, the, the lenses of the gospel, and Paul understands the condition of the human heart that it's this. Your heart and my heart and the heart of every human being that's ever existed tends to drift into idolatry. You say, Pastor Mike, you're crazy. I've never even had a statue in my house. What are you talking about? Here's what idolatry as Scripture holds it out to us to mean. I'm going to read a quote from Tim Keller. It says this, Our idol is anything to us that we hold more important than God. Anything that absorbs our heart and our imagination more than God. Anything we seek to give us what only God can give. That's a huge phrase. Anything that we seek to trust in and to lean into or to depend on or to hope in that really only God can do. An idol is whatever we look at and say in our heart of hearts. If I have that then my life will have meaning. If I have that, then I know I'll have value. If I have that, then I feel I will feel more significant and more secure. In other words, the Scripture is giving you and I in this culture and in any culture a glimpse into the human heart, and that's this. Every human heart worships something. Every human heart. You say, well, listen... What we did here this morning is we sang and we worshiped, yes, but your whole life is worship in one way or another because there's this ceaseless overflow from your soul that recognizes beauty and recognizes wonder and grandeur and your heart is so designed and created to worship and to give affection and attention ultimately to your creator because it is in him that you find ultimate joy and meaning and life, but sin entered the world. Now listen, this is where you're living and the disorder of our heart caused by sin is this, is our worship becomes disordered and we drift and we begin to look to created things to do and to be what only the creator can do and be in our life. Do you hear that? Sin in my heart and your heart, and the world in which we live, so disorders our affections that left to ourselves, our heart drifts from the Creator to do and be in our life what only Jesus can be, and our heart begins to grab onto, and our, our heart begins to cling onto these created things that are good, but we want them to be God. And we think they can be God. And what happens is it leaves us in bondage, and ultimately it leaves us massively dissatisfied, and we don't know why. So Paul looks out on the world, the city of Athens, and he sees the hearts of the men and women clinging to their idols, i.e., their soul has clung to all these created things. And Paul's heart grieves. And for you and I this morning, heart of God grieves and you and I as we look into the hearts of one another as believers and we look into the hearts of those who don't know Christ, man, we we want to hold out very clearly it is Jesus and Jesus alone that is worthy of worship. We just sang it. And as he is our affection and our joy and our treasure, there is true satisfaction and there's true joy and there's true meaning. But our heart tends to disorder worship toward the created things. Let me give you a quick example. Very quickly. I told you I don't know how far we're going to get in Acts 17, so just bear with me. Now, guys, I'm going to do you a favor here. You ready? All the guys in the room, wake up. Ready? Ready? Marriage is a good thing. (laughs) Marriage is a good thing. Amen. It's a gift. I'm married to an incredible woman. I mean that not just because she's sitting 10 feet away from me and can throw things at me. She's a wonderful woman. She's a gift from God. But watch this. She cannot be my God. She can't. In other words, if somehow I let my heart drift, and this happens to newlywed couples so easily, and this happens in dating relationships so easily, we get so enamored with that other person and we think, man, in them I have identity. In them, I have ultimate joy. And listen, I love time with my wife. We have a great life. We enjoy life. But she cannot give me my ultimate meaning and purpose in life. She can't. She's not God. But if I transfer that to her and that expectation to her, which we tend to do with the gifts God gives us, guess what will happen over time? She cannot live up to that expectation and I will grow dissatisfied with her and ultimately I will be done. Do you know what happens in marriages over time? One of the things that happens in marriages over time is the husband and the wife, they drift in their affections for Jesus and their worship of Jesus as their all. Maybe they start to look to one another and and over time that doesn't work out. And they become frustrated with one another because we are not good deities. We're not good life givers. We're not good all-sustaining joy givers. Listen, this is not preacher talk. Jesus is the only one in the universe that can be that. He's it. There are two realms of things that exist. There is the creator and everything else that's created. (laughs) The creator, our creator, has created us to find our joy and meaning in him. And when we transfer that to anything else, we become submerged under our little idol. That is the drift of every human heart, even believers. And many of you, even in this room, are so dissatisfied right now, and you don't know why. It's because you are looking to something created to do what only your creator can do. And the world that doesn't even know Jesus... They are submerged in their idols. And that's what Paul sees. Now, how does Paul respond to that? How does he feel, if you will, about it? Verse 16, same verse, very quickly, Paul says this, or verse 16, Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. What does that mean? You can conclude that the word provoked, it just means, well, he was frustrated and he kind of, I'm so sick of all this, he just walked. the, The word provoked here is a very strong word. It means this inner disposition. It's not just a response. It's not just a knee jerk, oh, that made me mad. This is a settled place of his heart and of his soul. It's in the imperfect tense, which means it's ongoing. It's ongoing. It's ongoing. He has this disposition. What is it? When he looked at the world, when he looked at those who are are giving worship to something other than God, there was this provocation in his heart. To understand it, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to quickly give you a couple verses. This word provocation or the response of Paul is the same response in the Old Testament and places in the New Testament as well. But when God would respond to his people going off into idolatry. In other words, Paul is having the same response to what he sees and the condition of the human heart that God had in places throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you one very quickly. Exodus 32, Moses goes up on the mountain. God gives him the Ten Commandments. He's he's meeting with God and he's carrying the Ten Commandments down. The people are left down in the valley. And if you know the story what happens when Moses is walking down the mountain, the people are forming this idol, this, this golden calf, which is a weird thing. It's because they come out of Egypt and that's all they knew. They're going back to what they knew in the past. God has a new direction for them, but they're going back into their old ways. And they form this golden calf and they say, okay, this is how we're going to have good crops. And this is how we're going to have provision. And we're going to trust this golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain. And here's what God says, verse 8 of Exodus 32. They've quickly turned aside from the way that I commanded them. That's the human condition. They have made for themselves a molten calf. They made it out of their own imagination. And their history in Egypt, what they saw in the world, they bl- the blending of those two. They've worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who's brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Verse 10. Now then, let me alone my anger, that my anger may burn against them. That burning righteous indignation of God toward idolatry is the same idea. In other words, there's this burning indignation of God. Now, you hear that word, and you get a little uncomfortable. When when we read the idea that God is angry about something, be honest, it, it makes us a little uncomfortable. Here's the question. Why was God angry that his people had formed this idol? Is God just in being angry. Why does he have the right to be angry? I'll give you three passages very quickly. You can just write these down. They'll be on the screen for you. Number one, Isaiah 42.8. Scripture says, God speaking, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. In other words, in all of the universe, there is only one who has the exclusive right of the worship of his people, and it's the Lord God himself. He had every right, if you will, to be angry that their worship had drifted to something else. Secondly, Exodus 34, 14, same idea. It's another nuance of the same word. You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Pastor Mike, I've read that before and I've heard that. I don't even get that. How is it right that... God is a jealous God. What does that mean? I mean, is he so insecure that he gets jealous of it? What does that mean? Because you understand there's a healthy, godly jealousy, and there's an unhealthy, ungodly jealousy, right? 1 Corinthians 13 says, love, true love, is not jealous. What does that mean? And then you come here to the Bible and it says God is jealous. How do you put that together? What does that mean? I'll give you an illustration very quickly. What's this. <laughs> So I use my wife again. All right, I, I did this first service and I asked her permission. It, okay, good. So this happens quite a bit on Sundays usually, and it's always a woman. When you'll understand why in a minute. But I, I'll preach a, a message and I'll think, man, I really I, I did okay, and I was true to the text. And a woman will, will come up to me after the service and they'll say something like this, Pastor Mike, you just got to know. And before the word comes out of her mouth, I'm thinking, she's getting ready to tell me how good the message was, how good I did. So you're just a great preacher and all that. And she'll go, you just got to know, your wife is a great Bible teacher. <laughs> See, right there, amen, I, I got it. Now, unrighteous and ungodly jealousy goes inside of me inside, inside of me goes, well, I don't get that. Why didn't she say that about me? Ungodly jealousy is the selfish type that doesn't want others to benefit or receive praise. That's not what God is saying about himself. God is not insecure. But here's what God is. What's this? If I, as a husband, for example, find out that the affections and the heart of my wife that I dearly love, begin to drift to another. Watch this. I am jealous, righteously jealous, because jealousy there is the opposite of indifferent. God is not insecure, but God is never indifferent. Love is not... Passive and stands and waits. Listen, I guarantee you, if you as a parent see your son or daughter drifting into something that you know is not good for them and will cause them harm, the last thing that is righteous for you to do is to be indifferent. So God reveals Himself here as a jealous God who is committed to our good and He is gloriously committed to His own name. By the way, what else would God be committed to except His own glory? There's nothing greater. But when he sees us replacing his glory and his greatness for something that's created that will harm us and ultimately lead to our destruction, he is not indifferent. He is righteously zealous for us. Third passage, very quickly. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, and this one's not going to be on the screen. You can just listen to this one. God says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, the place of life. And they have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Meaning, God is not empty or indifferent when we replace him with that which is vain and worthless. God has a deep compassion for you. God has a deep longing for us to worship for our good. And even greater than that, what's this, God has a righteous jealousy for his own glory. And when Paul looks out on Athens and he sees the culture and he sees the souls of the people drifting and clinging toward all these things and God receiving no praise and God receiving no glory and the created things replacing the creator, which is very common in our culture, Paul doesn't stand with indifference Paul doesn't pat his foot in mere judgment. The heart of Paul is so gripped. Why? Because, listen, Paul has a white, hot worship of the one true God. And his heart cannot bear when God is not receiving the worship that is due his name. And it motivates him. So that's what Paul sees. And this is what Paul feels. Now, very quickly, okay, what does Paul do? Let me quickly show you look on down at verse 17 so with this Paul can't not do anything he can't just be indifferent and it, it, it spurs him on he goes into the city this is like a this is one of the great church planter passages of a church planter who goes into a city and their heart's so broken for a city like I, I spoke with Derek Sherfy yesterday and he was in Denver and had a team there in Denver and ready to go to the city of Denver and they'd been church, or they'd been prayer walking that city. Their hearts were just broken for the people but they were viewing. One day, there's going to be a church here that doesn't exist now. And God is going to be receiving worship and glory and honor that he doesn't receive now. And it's what was motivating this church planning team to be there in Denver. Maybe it'll motivate some of you to go be part of that team. So Paul enters into the city, verse 17. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, but he didn't stay in the synagogue. And in the marketplace, every day, circle that word, every day, Paul planted his life in the marketplace. The word marketplace is massive here. It means it's the word agora. It, it was, we, don't, we don't really have anything equivalent to that in this day. Everything from commerce to entertainment to education to social. There was no social media that day. Watch this. If you wanted to talk to somebody, you had to go see them face to face. Imagine that. And all that happens here in the agora. It's the place of life. It's where the philosophers hung out. It's where the news was broadcast. They didn't have TVs. It's where you got the news. All of that happened in the Agora. So Paul goes and plants his life there in the marketplace. This is a beautiful picture for you and me. And we say it over and over we are the ones who carry the gospel to where we live, work, and play. This is where people live, work, and played in the city of Athens. And Paul planted himself right there in the middle of it. He didn't withdraw. He didn't see all the wickedness and all the immorality. And I said, okay, I'm just done with it. I'm going to go up on a hill and pray judgment down on Athens. Paul said, no, no, no. By the grace of God, I'm going right to where the people are. And I'm going to plant my life there. He leaves the synagogue. He leaves the, the, the religious building, if you will. And he takes the message right there to the marketplace. Let me make this statement really quick. In a pagan culture like ours, the primary location of evangelism will not likely be the church building you hear that? And Lifeway Research recently did a study of millennials. Anthony referred to himself as a millennial a few minutes ago. So people like Anthony, if you will, millennials. They did, they did a study and only one-third of the millennials said, I might likely go to a worship service or a religious service. Only one-third. Eighty percent of that same group said, but if someone wanted to share with me, if a friend wanted to share with me the message of the gospel, I would listen to what they had to say. Meaning, the place evangelism is going to happen is not predominantly in our church buildings in this culture anymore. We go. We go. So Paul went. He carried it. Verse 18 says, and some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. That's symbolic for Paul was being hit with all the philosophies of the world. In other words, it's those situations that you hate and that you dread. Well, if I begin to share the gospel with someone or I begin to share the gospel with my friend, man, they're going to have questions that I can't handle and they're going to have things, they're going to have angles and they don't believe this and they don't believe that way and they don't believe like I do. Listen, in Athens, there were like, Nobody that believed what Paul believed. The Stoic and the Epicurean philosophies, they, they taught that, yes, there are gods, but they are distant and removed from human affairs. They're not engaged in the lives of everyday people. The, the world, they, they taught it was due to chance, completely random. There was no creator. The world just happened to come into being. Ultimately, there's no ultimate meaning. The, the ultimate pleasure at goal is pleasure. And they believe there's no judgment. There's, after death, it's just all over so these philosophies permeated in Athens and permeated the Roman world and here's Paul okay so Paul in the midst of this pagan world Paul in the midst of people they think you're an alien man and they don't they don't believe like you believe and they've got all these worldviews and they've got all these philosophies and they, they've got their own little deities that they believe Paul what in the world are you gonna say what in the world are you going to say to a world like that? And by the way, that's the question for you and me because we live in a very similar world. So Paul, what do you do? That's our last point. So we saw what Paul saw. We felt what Paul felt. We, we, we see what Paul did. He went into the marketplace. Finally, what does Paul say? And we're finished with this. Verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens... I observe observe that you're very religious in all respects. Translation in our culture, you're very spiritual. There's a spirituality about what you believe, verse 24. But then Paul launches into a discourse of who the one true God is. Paul, in this pagan culture, it's not not just a one-time drop in the hat. Over time, it says day after day after day after day. These conversations day after day after day. Paul was dropping in. Here's who the true God is. And here's what the true God has done. And let me just say this. I am so proud of our next gen team. Do you understand that if you are in preschool, uh, the family discipleship plan is built around the exact same model. That your children, your students who are in preschool will have 16 different truths laying out who God is and what God has done. And that's why the family discipleship plan for us as a church is a way to disciple the next generation. Paul says some of the exact same things here. Now, look with me. I'm going to give you four or five things that he says about God, and we're done, okay? So hang with me. Verse 24. Paul says, the God who made the world and all things in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands in a culture that rejected the idea of a personal creator and rejected the idea of creation itself. It just all kind of came into being by chance. Paul says, hold on, I want to let you know there is a God and he is the creator. And Paul holds out from Genesis to Revelation what scripture teaches that there is a creator and his name is Jesus Christ. Paul starts there. Now, you may not know it, but you live in a culture that even that truth is scoffed at and rejected. But if you lose the idea that there is a personal creator and you, and you punt Genesis and you punt all of what Scripture teaches, man, you don't just punt creation, you punt the gospel. There is a creator. Paul says, The God who made the world. Then, verse 25. He is not served by human hands. Their ideas of, of, of God was this needy pauper God and this oppressive God who is needy and limited. And, and Paul says, Hold on, you gotta understand this God I'm holding out, he's not, He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything. He's not limited. God is not indifferent, God is not insecure, and God is not poor. God is limitless, He is infinite. He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That's what Anthony Mel read earlier. to this culture that had taken the idea of a God and made them into their own human image. Paul says, "No, no, no, You have made God into your own image. I want you to know God in His image as He has revealed himself to the world. He is limitless. He is infinite. He has created the stars and the galaxies, and he's created every molecule that exists. Paul goes on, verse 27, and he says, or verse 26, I'll just start there. He said, he made from one man every nation of mankind that lives on the face of the earth. He determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him. He is not far from each one of us. Here's the next thing Paul says, this God is knowable to you. The, the, the understanding of that day was it's only a distant God. He's not involved in my life. He really doesn't care. There's these pantheons of God. They don't really, and Paul is holding out, and we know this is the basis of what he said. No, no, God has taken on flesh. He has come. He has walked among you. He is knowable to you. There is a God that has made himself known. Listen, you gotta understand, you live in a culture where those who want to reject the gospel and maybe reject what they know about God, I'm convinced often those who say they reject Christianity is simply because they don't know what the Bible teaches about this God. And they don't know that this God has made himself known and he has come to you. He is not only from a distance. He has invaded our world and taken on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ because of his great love for us. God is knowable. And then finally... Verse 30, Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance in the past, in other words, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of idolatry and rejecting the one true God, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day. Paul's very clear that this, this understanding that there's no consequences, and there's no judgment. Paul says, "No, no, no. There is a day coming in the future that all the immorality and all the idolatry and all the sin, all of us, ours, God will once and for all bring judgment upon it." You say, "How do you how do you know that?" He says. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, the God-man, whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now listen, hang with me here. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the notion that all this can just go on and on and on forever without some judgment, righteous judgment. Paul says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. God has come God has taken on flesh and he has appointed one, Jesus Christ, who will be the judge that you will stand before one day. He says, if you don't believe it, find anybody else in the universe that's risen from the dead. He's it, Jesus. So the resurrection proves that he has a supreme place in all of the universe, Jesus. And he says, one day you will stand before this judge whom God raised from the dead. But at the same time, throughout this, he's teaching the glorious picture of the gospel. Don't miss this. This is so glorious. That one that you will stand before someday as your judge, your righteous judge, is also the same one that came and took on your judgment upon himself. There is no message in the world that matches that message of the gospel. Nowhere. To this group, there's going to be judgment someday? Yes, but you've got to understand at the same time, there is one who has come and he has taken your judgment upon himself and he has died in your place. And to prove it, he has risen from the dead. The one who gives the law, if you will, is the one who stands between the wrath of God and you as your intercessor. Back in back in the Old Testament, very quickly, there's a picture of this. And I'll close. Remember what I said Moses was coming down the mountain? And our team can come on up and just begin to play. There was the team that was, or there was Moses coming down the mountain and he was carrying the Ten Commandments. And down in the valley, the people had drifted over into immorality. And when Moses got down in the valley, what did he do? He was carrying the law of God that the people had just broken. And he takes the tablets and he throws them down and they smash. In other words, they had broken the righteous law of God. What's this? And God says to Moses, I have every right to destroy these people. Every right. And Moses says, Wait. Moses says, wait, don't destroy these people. Don't you remember the promises you made to Abraham? Listen, let me be the intercessor. And Moses begins to stand between the righteous judgment of God on immorality and idolatry. And Moses becomes the intercessor. And you say, okay, what does it have to do with me? That was for a temporary period of time and was a picture of the greater Moses to come. The message of the gospel is this that the righteous judge and the righteous God who is deserving of our worship and must righteously judge when our worship is disordered, which it is, is the same one who stands as intercessor and has absorbed the very wrath of God that you and I deserve and His name is Jesus Christ. God is your savior. Jesus is your savior. And at the same time, you're righteous judge. And the cross of Christ brings all of that together in perfect harmony. Sin is dealt with. Love is extended. Mercy is given. Lives are changed by Jesus Christ on the cross. That was the transforming message of the gospel 2,000 years ago in Athens, Greece. And that is the transforming gospel message that you and I hold out to the pagan culture we live in as well. Amen. Would you bow your heads and this pray. Just a second. We're going to stand and sing. We're going to continue to sing the greatness of our God and His glory. But I want to just ask you just a minute, just a second there in your seat before we stand and sing. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just kind of a moment of worship for a second. I said at the beginning of the message, the gospel is transformational to every area of your life. Is that true of you? In other words, is the gospel just something you've heard? Is it maybe even something you could recite? Or have you been fundamentally fundamentally changed? You think different. You see different. You have different desires. There is a difference about you because Jesus indwells you. If that's not true of you this morning on the authority of God's word you need to strongly consider whether you are a believer at all the good news is this Christ has died, he has risen and by faith you can believe and receive him this morning, you can cry out Jesus I need you to be my Lord my Savior, yes my judge but my sin bearer cry out to him in faith this morning for the rest of us Do we ever feel like that alien? Are you so living and so carrying the gospel and so penetrating the culture around you that sometimes you feel like an alien? I pray that the glory of God so grips our hearts that we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Father, we love you. Spirit of God, move and transform our hearts even this morning for Jesus' sake. In your name we pray. Amen.